Chapter One of A Little Bush Maid by Mary Grant Bruce. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Bologna Times. Chapter One Billabong. Nora's home was on a big station in the north of Victoria, so large that you could almost, in her own phrase, ride all day and never see anyone you didn't want to see, which was a great advantage in Nora's eyes. Not that Billabong Station ever seemed to the little girl a place that you needed to praise in any way. It occupied so very modest a position as the loveliest part of the world. The homestead was built on a gentle rise that sloped gradually away on every side, in front to the wide plain dotted with huge gum trees and great gray box groves, and at the back, after you had passed through the well-kept vegetable garden and orchard, to a long lagoon, bordered with trees and fringed with tall bulrushes and waving reeds. The house itself was old and quaint and rambling, part of the old wattle and dab walls yet remaining in some of the outhouses, as well as the gray shingle roof. There was a more modern part, for the house had been added to from time to time by different owners, though no additions had been made since Nora's father brought home his young wife, fifteen years before this story opens. Then he had built a large new wing with wide and lofty rooms, and round all had put a very broad, tiled veranda. The creepers had had time to twine round the massive posts in those fifteen years, and some even lay in great masses on the veranda roof. Tacoma, pink, and salmon-colored, purple bougainvillea, and the snowy mandevilla clusters. Hard-headed people said this was not good for the building, but Nora's mother had planted them, and because she had loved them, they were never touched. There was a huge front garden, not at all a proper kind of garden, but a great stretch of smooth buffalo grass, dotted with all kinds of trees, amongst which flower-beds cropped up in most unexpected and unlikely places, just as if some giant had flung them out on the grass like a handful of pebbles that scattered as they flew. They were always trim and tidy, and the gardener, Hogg, was terribly strict, and woe betide the author of any small footmarks that he found on one of the freshly raked surfaces. Nothing annoyed him more than the odd bulbs that used to come in the midst of his precious buffalo grass impertinent crocuses and daffodils and hyacinths that certainly had no right there. Blessed if I know how they ever gets there, Hogg would say, scratching his head, whereat Nora was wont to retire behind a pyramid tree for purposes of mirth. Hogg's sworn foe was Li Wing, the Chinese gardener, who reigned supreme in the orchard and the kingdom of vegetables. Not quite the same thing as the vegetable kingdom, by the way. Li Wing was very fat, his broad yellow face generally wearing a cheerful grin, unless he happened to catch sight of Hog. His long pigtail was always concealed under his flapping straw hat. Once Jim, who was Nora's big brother, had found him asleep in his hut with the pigtail drooping over the edge of the bunk. Jim thought the opportunity too good to lose, 
and with such deftness that the celestial never stirred he tied the end of the pigtail to the back of a chair with rather startling results when lee wing awoke with a sudden sense of being late and made a spring from the bunk the chair of course followed him and the loud yell of fear and pain raised by the victim brought half the homestead to the scene of the catastrophe jim was the only one who did not wait for developments he found business at the lagoon the queerest part of it was that lee wing firmly believed hogg to be the author of his woe nothing moved him from this view not even when jim finding how matters stood owned up like a man you ali same goop boy said the pigtailed one proffering him a succulent raw turnip me no you telly fine large crammy hog he telly crammy too so dly up and jim finding expostulation useless dried up accordingly and ate the turnip which was better than the leek to the right of the homestead at billabong a clump of box trees sheltered the stables that were the unspoken pride of mr linton's heart before his time the stables had been a conglomerate mass bark-roofed slab-sided falling to decay and added to as each successive owner had thought fit with a final mixture of old and new that was neither convenient nor beautiful mr linton had apologized to his horses during his first week of occupancy and in the second turning them out to grass with less apology had pulled down the rickety old sheds replacing them with a compact and handsome building of red brick with room for half a dozen buggies men's quarters harness and feed rooms many loose boxes and a loft where a ball could have been held and where indeed many a one was held when all the young farmers and stockmen and shearers from far and near brought each his lass and tripped it from early night to early dawn to the strains of old andy ferguson's fiddle and young dave boone's concertina nora had been allowed to look on at one or two of these gatherings she thought them the height of human bliss and was only sorry that sheer inability to dance prevented her from taking the floor with mick shanahan the horsebreaker who had paid her the compliment of asking her first it was a great compliment too nora felt seeing what a man of agility and splendid accomplishments was mick and that she was only nine at the time there was one loose box which was nora's very own property and without her permission no horse was ever put in it except its rightful occupant bobs whose name was proudly displayed over the door in jim's best carving bobs had always belonged to nora he had been given to her as a foal when nora used to ride a round little black shelty as easy to fall off as to mount he was a beauty even then nora thought and her father had looked approvingly at the long-legged baby with his fine well-bred head you will have something worth riding when that fellow is fit to break in my girlie he had said and his prophecy had been amply fulfilled mick shanahan said he'd never put a leg over a finer pony nora knew there never had been a finer anywhere he was a big pony very dark bay in color and as handsome as paint and with the kindest disposition full of life and go but without the smallest particle of vice it was an even question which loved the other best 
bobs or nora no one ever rode him except his little mistress the pair were hard to beat so the men said to nora the stables were the heart of billabong the house was all very well of course she loved it and she loved her own little room with its red carpet and dainty white furniture and the two long windows that looked out over the green plain that was all right so were the garden and the big orchard especially in summer-time the only part that was not all right was the drawing-room an apartment of gloomy seldom-used splendor that nora hated with her whole heart but the stables were an abiding refuge she was never dull there apart from the never-failing welcome in bob's loose box there was the dim fragrant loft where the sunbeams only managed to send dusty rays of light across the gloom here nora used to lie on the sweet hay and think tremendous thoughts here also she laid deep plans for catching rats and caught scores in traps of her own devising nora hated rats but nothing could induce her to wage war against the mice poor little chaps she said they're so little and and soft and she was quite saddened if by chance she found a stray mouse in any of her shrewdly designed traps for the benefit of the larger game which infested the stables and had even the hardihood to annoy bobs nora had never known her mother she was only a tiny baby when that gay little mother died a sudden terrible blow that changed her father in a night from a young man to an old one it was nearly twelve years ago now but no one ever dared to speak to david linton of his wife sometimes nora used to ask jim about mother for jim was fifteen and could remember just a little but his memories were so vague and misty that his information was unsatisfactory and after all nora did not trouble much she had always been so happy that she could not imagine that to have had a mother would have made any particular difference to her happiness you see she did not know she had grown just as the bush wild flowers grow hardy unchecked almost untended for though old nurse had always been there her nursling had gone her own way from the time she could toddle she was everybody's pet and plaything the only being who had power to make her stern silent father smile almost the only one who ever saw the softer side of his character he was fond and proud of jim glad that the boy was growing up straight and strong and manly able to make his way in the world but nora was his heart's desire of course she was spoiled if spoiling consists in rarely checking an impulse all her life nora had done pretty well whatever she wanted which meant that she had lived out of doors followed in jim's footsteps wherever practicable and in a good many ways most people would have thought distinctly impracticable and spent about two-thirds of her waking time on horseback but the spoiling was not of a very harmful kind her chosen pursuits brought her under the unspoken discipline of the work of the station where an ordinary instinct taught her to do as others did and conformed to their ways she had all the dread of being thought silly that marks the girl who imitates boyish ways jim's rare growl have a little sense went farther home than a whole volume of admonitions of a more ordinarily genuine feminine type she had no little girl friends for none was nearer than the nearest township 
Kunji, seventeen miles away. Moreover, little girls bored Nora frightfully. They seemed a species quite distinct from herself. They prattled of dolls, they loved to skip, to dress up, and play ladies, and when Nora spoke of the superior joys of cutting out cattle or coursing hares over the long plain, they stared at her with blank lack of understanding. With boys she got on much better. Jim and she were tremendous chums, and she had moped sadly when he went to Melbourne to school. Holidays then became the shining events of the year, and the boys whom Jim brought home with him, at first prone to look down on the small girl with lofty condescension, generally ended by voting her no end of a jolly kid, and according her the respect due to a person who could teach them more of bush life than they had dreamed of. But Nora's principal mate was her father. Day after day they were together, riding over the run, working the cattle, walking through the thick scrub of the backwater, driving young, half-broken horses in the high dog cart to Kunji. They were rarely apart. David Linton seldom made a plan that did not naturally include Nora. She was a wise little companion, too, ready enough to chatter like a magpie if her father were in the mood, but quick to note if he were not, and then quite content to be silently beside him, perhaps for hours. They understood each other perfectly. Nora never could make out the people who pitied her for having no friends of her own age. How could she possibly be bothered with children, she reflected, when she had daddy? As for Nora's education, that was of the kind best defined as a minus quantity. "'I won't have her bothered with books too early,' Mr. Linton had said when Nurse hinted on Nora's eighth birthday, that it was time she began the rudiments of learning. "'Time enough yet. We don't want to make a bookworm of her.' Whereat Nurse smiled demurely knowing that that was the last thing to be afraid of in connection with her child. But she worried in her responsible old soul all the same, and when a wet day or the occasional absence of Mr. Linton left Nora without occupation, she induced her to begin a few elementary lessons. The child was quick enough, and soon learned to read fairly well and to write laboriously, but there Nurse's teaching from books ended. Of other and practical teaching, however, she had a greater store. Mr. Linton had a strong leaning towards the old-fashioned virtues, and it was at a word from him that Nora had gone to the kitchen and asked Mrs. Brown to teach her to cook. Mrs. Brown, fat, good-natured, and adoring, was all acquiescence, and by the time Nora was eleven she knew more of cooking and general housekeeping than many girls grown up in fancying themselves ready to undertake houses of their own. Moreover, she could sew rather well, though she frankly detested the accomplishment. The one form of work she cared for was knitting, and it was her boast that her father wore only the socks she manufactured for him. Nora's one gentle passion was music. Never taught, she inherited from her mother a natural instinct and an absolutely true ear, and before she was seven she could strum on the old piano in a way very satisfying to herself and awe-inspiring to the admiring nurse. Her talent increased yearly, and at ten she could play anything she heard, 
from ear, for she had never been taught a note of music. It was, indeed, her growing capabilities in this respect that forced upon her father the need for proper tuition for the child. However, a stopgap was found in the person of the bookkeeper, a young Englishman, who knew more of music than accounts. He readily undertook Nora's instruction, and the lessons bore moderately good effect, the moderation being due to a not unnatural disinclination of the pupil's part to walk where she had been accustomed to run, and to a fixed loathing to practice, as the latter necessary, if uninteresting pursuit, was left entirely to her own discretion, for no one ever dreamed of ordering Nora to the piano. It is small wonder if it suffered beside the superior attractions of riding bobs, rat-trapping, shinning up trees, fishing in the lagoon, and generally disporting herself as a maiden may whom conventional restrictions have never trammeled. It follows that the music lessons, twice a week, were times of woe for Mr. Groom, the teacher. He was an earnest young man, with a sincere desire for his pupil's improvement, and it was certainly disheartening to find on Friday that the words of Tuesday had apparently gone in at one ear and out at the other simultaneously. Sometimes he would remonstrate. "'You haven't got on with that piece a bit!' "'What's the good?' the pupil would remark, twisting round on the music-stool. "'I can play nearly all of it from ear!' "'That's not the same,' severely. That's only frivoling. I'm not here to teach you to strum. No, Nora would agree abstractedly. Mr. Groom, you know that poly bullock down in the far end paddock? No, I don't, severely. This is a music lesson, Nora. You're not after cattle now. Wish I were, sighed the pupil. Well, will you come out with the dogs this afternoon? Can't. I'm wanted in the office. Now, Nora. But if I ask father to spare you? Oh, I'd like to write enough. Mr. Groom was young, and the temptress, if younger, was skilled in wiles. But your father? Oh, I can manage, Dad. I'll go and see him now. She would be at the door before her teacher perceived that his opportunity was vanishing. Nora, come back. If I'm to go out, you must play this first, and get it right. Mr. Groom could be firm on occasions. "'Come along, you little shirker,' and Nora would unwillingly return to the music-stool and worry laboriously through a page of the hated Zerny. End of chapter 1